Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. I'm excited this week to share with you a great conversation I got to have with Alan Gannett, author of the upcoming book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. In this conversation with Alan, we talk about the myth that you either are or aren't a genius, a creative person. And in fact, there's much more to it than that. And in fact, there's much more to it than having talent or not. It's not necessarily a binary thing, but it has way more to do with deliberate and intentional practice and honing of skills. I think you might be surprised by what you find out in this conversation. And I know for me, thinking along the terms of my own creative endeavors and things that I want to learn how to do or be better at doing, this conversation was a real encouragement to me. So I know it's going to be the same for you, and I will just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Alan Gannett. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Alan Gannett. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I was just telling you prior to hitting record that uh, reading your new book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, uh, I did not expect to find uh, the Beatles and specifically one specific <laughs> story in there. But, but but even more surprising, like I didn't expect to be surprised by information about the Beatles that I did not know because I'm a huge Beatles <laughs> fan and have re- I, I have read – Gosh, I don't know how many books and, and, you know, watch the Beatles anthology a number of times, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so this was a real treat for me. Uh, but the creative curve, this, this fits right in with my show and productivity because we're always talking about not just doing the right things, but doing the right things at the right time. But not only that, maybe fitting in between seasons of the creative curve by doing the right things in preparation for when it's the right time. So. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things – and so, you know, as you sort of talk about, the Beatles is one of the stories I use as an example where, 
you know, we have this notion in our culture of creativity as this magical, mystical, wonderful thing that, you know, for some people like Paul McCartney, who seemingly dreamed up the song yesterday, literally in a dream, is this like wonderful organic process. But I talk about in the book, I sort of sort of break down the story of yesterday and give some of the more real and sort of actual story of how it actually came about. But when you actually look at a lot of these stories of creative genius, whether it's Paul McCartney or J.K. Rowling or really any of them, what you find is that really they're the story of long periods of intense amount of training, consumption, uh, information gathering, and then huge amounts of work once they have an initial idea. It's not the, you know, the, the, the classic example that people like to talk about is Mozart being sort of this, you know, this child prodigy and popping out of the womb playing the piano. <laughs> the reality is Mozart started when he was three years old, practicing the piano three hours every single day with literally the best music teachers and under the thumb of a helicopter dad. And he wrote his first true piece of original music 14 years later when he was 17, which you think is young, but first, it wasn't a very good piece of music. And second, this is after 14 years of practicing every single day with the best music teachers under all of Europe under the conditional love of a helicopter dad. So like, yeah, like, you'd create a half-decent concerto too. And so we have this notion in our culture of creativity that's just wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically this myth that it's a binary. It's it's a one or a zero. It's a yes or a no. It's yep. a true, I'm a genius, or false, I'm not one. But even that myth think, is false, think, right? And I think, yeah, and I think part of it is we actually, you know, I think we kind of like that myth. You know, not only is there, there fun stories, but – it also gives us an excuse, right? If for some people it's so easy to be that creative, well, then maybe if it's not easy for me, I just shouldn't work that hard. I shouldn't try. And so I think this is actually, and I talk about this in the book, you know, one of my worries in writing a book that's sort of deconstructing creativity is that people will think I'm saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. In fact, what I'm saying is that it is possible, but it is incredibly difficult. And, you know, if you're up for the challenge, you can achieve great creative things, but you have to be really cognizant of the fact that it's actually hard. And I think that's a good thing. I think the fact that it's hard and possible is much better than the fact that some people think it's easy and impossible. And the thing is, it's so funny about this is when you actually look at, you know, in, a, in the book, sort of, I took two tacks. One is I uh, interviewed a lot of the academics who study creativity and talent development. The other half, I interviewed actual creative practitioners who've won Oscars, billionaires, Tony Award winners, blah, blah, blah. And what's interesting is when you talk to people in the talent development field, what they tell you is that basically most of these people who we think it's easy for, really, they just went through the hard part as kids and typically their parents forced them through it. And so it's not that it was like easy for them. It's just like they weren't even really self-aware during the hard parts. And our parents are pretty good at getting us to do stuff. And so as an adult, one of the big challenges we have is that any new skill is going to be difficult at first. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that you have to construct around you the right social support to push you through that, both through people who will just motivate you through positive emotions and also people who will give you that sense of like friendly competition, right? Those people who will get that little bit of envy or jealousy going because that's actually a very powerful motivator to sort of cut through the difficult part. And see, when people start to hear this stuff, they start thinking of, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, which is and isn't true to a certain extent, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule is obviously whenever you write a book about creativity or talent, it sort of comes up. It's a very, you know, well off repeated um, <clears throat> motif now. And the issue is that it's based on research by Kay Anders Erickson, who's one of the foremost researchers in talent development. I interviewed him for my book, and I'll give you the punchline, then I'll explain. But the punchline is he gave me this quote that I put in the book 
that's literally Gladwell misread my paper, period. Oh my and gosh. The issue, the issue is that, you know, what Gladwell writes is that with 10,000 hours of practice, we can become good at anything. Well, there's two big issues. First, um, that's not what the paper says at all. The paper doesn't say it's 10,000 hours. There's not some magical cell in your brain that the second you hit 10,000 hours, you become great. Otherwise, we'd all be NASCAR drivers because we drive so much. No, what the book says, um, what the research says is that it's 10,000 hours on average across people and on average across skills. Some skills take way more time. Some skills take way less. So, for example, becoming the world's best uh, piano player these days takes, these days takes about 25,000 hours. On the other hand, there's this whole trend around digit memorization right now. Like, I don't know. And people all do this. And it's like there's, there's tournaments and this whole thing about how many digits can you memorize. It takes about 400 hours to become the world's best digit memorizer. People have been doing it for less. There's less people competing in that arena. That's one. But it also, the other nuance of that is different people takes different amount of time. So some people may take 25,000 hours to become the world's best piano player. Some people may be 30,000. Some people may be 20,000. So there's some variance there. But the second and the bigger, the bigger problem with the 10,000 hours rule is that it nowhere says in Malcolm Gladwell's book, the word deliberate. And it turns out that all of the research is focused on something called deliberate practice. Not just practice, but deliberate practice. And they're actually two very different things. Practice is just doing something over and over again, building your sort of muscle memory for it. You know, it basically works to make something more automated, more subconscious. Deliberate practice is actually deliberately making something conscious. It's actually taking a big macro skill and breaking it down to the smallest component parts you can. So if you're a basketball player, it's like left-handed dribbling mid-court. If you're a painter, you would do exercises around something called brush efficiency, which is basically practicing how much pressure you use when you're actually painting. You break down these big macro skills into these tiny little skills. And then you practice these tiny little skills over and over and over again with some sort of feedback system. And that is actually how you keep developing. Because if you just do normal practice, what happens is your brain makes things automated. It stops actually getting better at them. It just sort of makes things, you know, subconscious. But when you do deliberate practice, when you do deliberate practice, you actually are able to keep getting better by breaking down these skills. And so that's a huge distinction in pedagogy that Malcolm Gladwell completely glosses over. And so the result is we have this notion that's really wrong that sort of infected our sort of business learning and how we talk about learning. And so we can all become great at things, but it takes a very specific type of practice and training to do it. That's fascinating. So in essence, Malcolm Gladwell created a modern day myth when it came to this <laughs> stuff. So, but let's talk about this myth, this myth of being a genius or not. Like, where do you think that myth came from? So it's really, it's really fascinating. So I, I, in the book, the first half of the book, I spend debunking this inspiration myth of creativity. The second half of the book is about, well, if it's a myth and how do you actually get better at it? And so the first half, I spend one chapter actually going through the history of creativity and genius and how they've intertwined over time. And it's super fascinating. I mean, you know, there have been times in culture, for example, where artists were actually viewed not as geniuses, but actually as basically like low-level craftspeople. And so what happened is during the Italian Renaissance, there was this huge amount of prospering that went on. All of a sudden, it wasn't just, you know, churches and kings that could afford art, but now it was all of these upper middle class merchants who had all this money and wanted to live like kings. And so they started buying art. So all of a sudden, the market for art exploded and a basic supply and demand equation fell into place where all of a sudden these artists just had more 
more people wanting their work. And so, um, you know, instead of viewing themselves as lowly craftspeople, they started developing egos, they started developing cults of personalities, they started developing brands. And all of a sudden, the idea of sort of this godlike artist developed. Where, you know, the artist, in fact, became the sort of source of these great works that people wanted and they saw in their friends' houses and they wanted. And, and you, so you see over time, the idea of creativity and the idea of genius have changed and developed and morphed. And right now, we're at a really interesting time where I think what's happened is over the last 10 years, we've sort of like really made it a lot about entrepreneurs. Like we fetishized entrepreneurship. Because where we're like, well, you know, there's Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs and, you know, these people who seemingly do these amazing tasks. You know, Elon Musk has a rocket company and a solar company and all this stuff. And the thing is, like, you know, you think about like a Steve Jobs, right? The truth is like, well, he had Steve Wozniak, right? He wasn't doing this all by himself. By From day one, he had multiple employees. He, you know, when he was building the iPod, had thousands and thousands of the world's best engineers working for him. Elon Musk has rocket scientists upon rocket scientists who work for him. You know, he's not there. He's not literally Tony Stark, you know, drawing all the schematics by himself. And so I think recently we've popularized the notion of the sort of solo entrepreneur sort of taking on the world as sort of our most sort of modern version of this this myth because um, I think it's attractive. It's interesting. It's engaging. It's fun. We all like the idea that there's these heroes in our culture who seemingly um, can do the extraordinary. It grabs a little bit from the Malcolm Gladwell modern myth of, well, it doesn't matter if I have talent or not, or if I'm a genius or not, I'll level up video game style when I hit the point me- measure of 10,000 hours. And one of the things you mentioned that I think is actually really interesting is video games are actually a super fascinating example of you know, one of the reasons why video games are addictive when we like playing them is the video game designers early on make it very easy to level up early. And so unlike when you're developing talent in something else where the early is the hardest, in video games it's the opposite. Once you're already addicted, once you already feel a sense of accomplishment, that's when it gets hard. And so video games are actually a great example of the opposite effect. And so that's why, you know, for many of us, you know, we feel like, oh, well, I can get really good at Fortnite. But playing the piano, that's impossible. And the reality is, no, no, no. It's just flipped on its on its head. It's actually just the early stage of the piano are incredibly difficult. And the later stages when it actually gets more straightforward. And so you know, in our culture, this is something that we just – we have this weird relationship with talent and with creativity. And I find it, I find it honestly sort of um, – sort of worrying because I think we're entering this age where automation AI are really going to, I think, take away so many jobs and not only are low skill, but are high skill, but repeatable, right? Think about like an anesthesiologist, right? It's like that is obviously going to be replaced by AI. And so I really worry that this myth of creativity has gone from sort of a, you know, just something that's not great to something that's really problematic at a societal level. Because if we don't start teaching people that they need to develop their creativity, you're going to enter a world where every other skill is automated and creativity is probably the last man standing. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this. Like, do you believe there's this at all? There's an inherent, like, certain amount of talent or genius at all that we're born with. And then we, you know, grow uh, or, or sorry, intentionally or deliberately develop <laughs> in individual, mi- you know, micro skills into macro level skills or like what's so what's the breakdown here? So I think obviously there's some things where there are physical things like there are, you know, being tall is helpful for being a basketball player. You can't change your height, but there are short basketball players. Right. But and this is this is going to sound controversial. 
but it is something that there's a lot of science behind. When you talk to the scientists and the researchers who spend their lives in the field of studying talent development and the field of study of greatness, which is a real name for a field, which I think is amazing, the study of greatness. What's amazing is that they actually are really, really against the idea of natural born talent. What they will tell you is that typically it's a misattribution. So typically a few different things happen. So a common thing is that, you know, a kid is really young and his parents are just being loving and, you know, he paints a terrible drawing and they tell him it's great because they love him. That positive validation creates a feedback loop where he then paints more because he likes the feeling he gets from it. And by the time he's seven or eight, he's actually good at painting because he's been doing it for years. And now people actually, more people give him positive feedback. He just does not more and more. And there's this idea of compounding advantage. Another example is there's the girl who, when she's 11, goes to her first track practice and she's super fast. And everyone's like, wow, she's such a talented runner. But what they don't see is that when she was five, her dad actually loves softball and baseball. And in their backyard, they would play baseball every day. And she was running between the bases in their backyard since she was five. So by the time she's 11, she spent six years essentially running track without realizing it. We misattribute that to talent. And so one of the things I was most surprised by, you know, when I went in to write the book, I had this idea that we probably have oversold talent. But the people who spend their lives doing actual academic research on talent think that it's mostly a farce. They think that really the reality is we're very, very bad at at tracing back the early roots of a skill and when and how people developed it. So Mm. if you were here talking to um, a professor who studies this, you'd get an answer that would probably shock you. And it would pretty much be, no, there's no such thing as talent, right? We there's just, no such thing as talent. We're, mis- we're misattributing where the, you know, micro origins of the different skills that we have up and to a certain point. And there's all from. sorts of fascinating things. Like there's this um, concept of neuroplasticity, which is that your brain every day generates thousands of new brain cells. And what's interesting is that these new brain cells, kind of like if your muscles are you know, working really hard, these new brain cells actually go and attach themselves literally to the parts of your brain that are most active. And what's crazy is that there's all these fascinating studies on this. So for example, there was a study in the 90s where um, they did MRIs of the brains of taxi cab drivers. What they found is the more years someone's been driving a taxi cab where you're constantly trying to navigate, um, the larger the part of their brain that was focused on uh, visual spatial navigational skills was. Literally, it just gets larger. Like that muscle, quote unquote, just gets bigger and more developed. Um, You know, they do these experiments with senior citizens where they have them do these brain exercises and they find that it generates a structural change in the brain that persists for 10 years. So I think the thing that we don't understand about our brains is that, and I think this is partly because it's obviously it's in our head. We don't really see it on a day-to-day basis unless, you know, we're getting an MRI day-to-day, which is troubling. And so with the thing we don't realize is that our brain is much like a muscle. We actually are constantly adapting to the world around us, as is our brain. And so I think the result is that people really are just, they sort of underappreciate their own ability to learn and improve and to get better at things. Mm. Okay, I got to throw this out there. What about like, say, a uh, what's the show called? You know, all those singing con- competition type shows like uh, for oh. me, for me, it comes down to like, yeah, you can train somebody to sing. But like if their voice just isn't there, that almost feels like so, a, a binary, right? So I have here's my challenge for you, Eric, and for all your listeners. 
all your listeners, go on YouTube after this episode and type into YouTube um, voice lessons before and after. And you will be, this is like a whole subgenre on YouTube. People are like, before and after your voice lessons, you will be shocked, shocked at how good people get. You know, one of the biggest things when people say, oh, well, I'm not a good singer. I'm not, not, not a good dancer. Well, have you ever taken a lesson? And this is one of those things that people have this idea that, well, you know, you're either born with it or you're not. No, no, no. People take lessons in voice and singing. And you will see, like, go on YouTube. They literally go from terrible, from sounding like me, to sounding amazing. Um, you know, with I, I use in the book, I have an example of this guy, Jonathan Hardestry, who, when he was 22, decided he wanted to become a world-class painter. And it just so happens that... Jonathan was active on this web forum and he created this thread that's like 250 pages long now where he said, I'm going to post, I'm going to paint every single day. And I'm going to post a painting I do every single day. And it actually became one of the world's, he did it for 13 years, one of the world's first truly recorded examples of someone going from a complete novice because he had never painted before to becoming a world-class talent. And now he sells his painting for five figures and he teaches people all around the world and all this stuff. But if you look at his first painting, it's terrible. It's atrocious. I mean, there's a guy who never painted till he was 22. So obviously it was terrible. And now he paints these like mesmerizing paintings. And so I really think, you know, we have this problem in our culture where too often we say, well, I've tried singing. I'm not good at it. Well, take a lesson, take 10 lessons, take 30 lessons, and then come back and tell me you're not good at it. All right. You sold me because I'm even thinking, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking about the whole singing thing and I'm like, okay, you know what? There is like multiple different, and I'm going to name off like two or three, but like there's breathing, there's uh, diction, there's... Let's see what else just hitting the right pitch. Like even that's kind of a, a practiced thing. And even just spending again, that intentional, that deliberate time on any one of those things starts to up your game, but doing all of them. And so, yeah, I'm going to, I'll definitely put the uh, voice lessons before and after in the show notes. So yeah, you sold me. <laughs> Boom. It's tap. Now you're going to take singing lessons. There you go. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. So then how then if we are not going to buy this myth anymore that we either are or aren't geniuses, how do then we progress forward with the creative curve? So let's talk about this. Like what specifically is the creative curve? So basically, the creative curve is my cutesy name for a scientific finding 
which is a individual level phenomenon, a group level phenomenon, and a population phenomenon. And what scientists call this phenomenon is the inverted U relationship between familiarity and preference. Woo, what does that mean? <laughs> Basically, and it's a U shape, hence the curve. Basically, what scientists have found is that when we first see something, we tend not to like it. The more we see something, the more we like it, but only up until a point. Once it reaches that point, which I call the point of cliche, the more we see something, the less we like it, hence the U shape. And it turns out that as people, our preferences are dictated by two competing urges. On one hand, we like things that are familiar. On the other hand, we like things that are novel. We like things that are familiar because they feel safe. We like things that are novel because of the potential reward. Our brain is constantly balancing these two things. You know, we don't want to, if we're on a, we're in a field and we see a berry we've never seen before, if it looks kind of like a strawberry, we go, okay, I'll try it. If it looks nothing like any berry we've ever eaten before, we don't eat it because it might kill us, which is smart. So the result is that our brain is constantly bouncing familiarity and novelty to decide what it likes or doesn't like. This is why, you know, things like Star Wars, it was literally a Western in space, it's familiar, but it's novel. Right now, there's this whole trend around sushi burritos. Literally, it's familiar, but it's novel. And so this relationship between familiarity and preference actually is a huge part of the story of creativity. Because when we talk about creative genius, really what it is, is it's the ability to create ideas that are at the right point of the creative curve. They have that right blend of familiarity and novelty. They're not so novel that they scare us away, and they're not so familiar that they bore us. So that's the idea of the creative curve. In the book, what I do in the second half of the book is I outline these four practices that the creative geniuses I interviewed did to actually do this, to actually get better at it. So for example, one of the things I talk about is that you know we talk about creativity as this very active act. There's this social media meme that I really hate. 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% of people create, hashtag hustle. And <laughs> I hate this meme for two reasons. One, it's stupid. Two, it's wrong because actually one of the biggest things that great creatives do is actually spend a huge amount of time consuming information because they know that they have to balance familiarity. And the only way to do this is to know what your audience has seen, what they've experienced, what they've witnessed. If you don't have that sense of taste, that understanding of the corpus that's out there, you're not going to be able to balance familiarity and novelty. So it actually turns out that consumption is incredibly important to the creative curve. And so that's one of the four things I outlined. It's actually one of the things I think is probably the most easily accessible for people. Well, and this is the point where the whole – the song yesterday from the Beatles and what we were talking about at the beginning comes back into play because it was Paul's – consumptive uh, habits that brought about the song, whether, you know, you think he just dreamed it up or not. Oh, hundred percent. So, you know, Paul McCartney spent his whole childhood around music. His parents were musical. He literally played in a cover band. Um, you know, the song yesterday has a lot of similar overtones, um, you know, to folks like Chuck Berry and little Richard, who were some of Paul's favorite musicians. And so what you just see is, and you actually take a closer look at stories of creative genius, you know, JK Rowling spent her entire childhood locked up in her bedroom, um, reading books because her parents were fighting and stressed out. And so she would just go there as her escape. I interviewed Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, who tells a story about how when he was an 18 year old, he got a job at a video rental store and he literally watched every single movie in the store because he 
didn't want to do his homework. And so like you see when you actually take a closer look at all these stories of creative genius, that consumption is a huge part of the story. I, uh, I interviewed multiple novelists and I cannot tell you how many times I heard some version of the story of like, I live near a library and I read every book in the library. And by the like the second or third time, I was like, I get it. There was a library. You read all the books. Like this is very common motif, it turns out. Well, and so essentially what we're saying is, is consumption is a huge part of then the creation process, right? Yes, because again, you know, one of the things, and I think part of the problem that people have when it comes to creativity is they mistake capital C creativity for lowercase c creativity. Lowercase c creativity is just, you're making things, right? Um, but actually in culture, when we talk about creativity, we typically mean capital C creativity, which is creating things that people actually care about. And to do that, to create things that people actually care about, it's incredibly important to create things your audience actually likes. And so then this whole relationship between familiarity and novelty comes into play, and that's where then consumption comes into play. So when you're thinking about creativity, it's really important to create that distinction in your mind because anyone can throw you know, paint on a canvas. I, I mean, I can do it and no one will care, but it's very different to throw paint on a canvas and have someone actually care about it. Those are two very different things. Well, and so then the other part, though, is if we're consuming all the time, aren't we then creating something that's derivative? Yes. All culture is derivative. I mean, it's literally impossible <laughs> not to unless you – when you were born, you went into a vacuum because even without realizing it, you know, you're watching TV, you're you – know, you like – even musicians who are like, well, they're so innovative. They're so novel. I mean, typically their songs are three minutes and 30 seconds. Um, you know, most movies aren't 10 hours long. They fit within the sort of normal structure and format. You know, the other day, Kanye West tweeted something. I hate quoting Kanye West, but he tweeted out that um, great artists steal an update. And it's just so true. I mean, you look at so much music, you know, think about how much music involves sampling other music. Uh, it's such a huge part of our culture. You know, when you look at, you know, fine art, for example, fine art clearly goes through these sort of um, gradual shifts. And, you know, we don't go from um, the Mona Lisa to Andy Warhol overnight, right? And so th the idea of sort of a remix culture, and one of the things that's so, so interesting, Eric, is that when I interview the creatives who are like really famous and really good at it, they're all very accepting and knowledgeable of this. Like they'll talk to you about it. They have theories on it. It's only the aspiring creatives that I find tend to be like really wedded to this idea of creativity being really focused on novelty, not the balance of novelty and familiarity. And I think that's, I don't know what that is, if that's like a coping mechanism or, you know, people just don't understand me or like whatever it is. But the people who really achieve creatively, they know that's about remixing. They know that's about stealing and updating. They know that great artists steal. Well, and even that quote from Kanye is from Steve Jobs, who got it from Picasso, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, this is not – none of this uh, – you know, this is one of the reasons why, by the way, um, you know, sociologists – this is kind of silly, but sociologists are really fascinated by memes because memes are actually a great example of this remix culture where the meme has a familiar baseline. There's a picture. Everyone sort of gets like what the two lines of text generally should be. So like, you know, if you do a grumpy cat meme, the first line is something straightforward. The second line is something grumpy and there's a picture of a grumpy cat. And so like 
you, the creator, all you have to do is create that little bit of novel twist with new text to create something that people will find interesting. And so memes are this little micro example of creativity that's really accessible because it's so clear what you have to remix to be successful. And so over and over again, when you look at creativity on this big lens, on a small, tiny lens like memes, it's really about nailing that familiarity and novelty. And that's kind of the skill in a sense that you're, you're honing that ability to be familiar and then you can strike out and do something novel within the familiarity. Totally. And what I talk about in the book is that, so of the, those, so I have these four principles I talk about. One is consumption. The second one that I think is worth mentioning in the same breath is imitation because it turns out that you know, it's not just about pure consumption because a lot of us watch Netflix, but how these creators, how these creators consume is very much on this sort of um, in this through this imitation lens. And this is where we get into this whole remix thing we were just talking about. You know, um, they're very what's the word I would use? It's very physical. It's very interactive. When they consume, they're touching the content. They're feeling it. They're seeing how it's structured. You know, Kurt Vonnegut at one point tried to get a master's degree in anthropology and the thesis he wrote, he ended up not getting the degree, by the way, because he got so bored with anthropology and he said, and I quote, I didn't realize how stupid primitive people were. So <laughs> let that, let, we'll just let that sit. But for his, his thesis, what he did is he actually took a bunch of novels and he mapped out on a chart of emotional to negative um, of positive to negative emotions, he mapped out on a chart the arc of these stories. What was the flow of these stories? Did they start negative and go to positive? They start positive, go to negative, go positive again. And from this, this is how he part of how he learned. You know, what is the way that stories are told? What are those story arcs that we like? Um, you know, I talk about in the book Ben Franklin. We think of as this great writer. But when he was 18, he was a terrible writer. And he talks in his autobiography about how he learned how to be a great writer was he literally took some of his favorite articles that were written and he would just outline how they were structured. Did they start with a quote? Did they start with a detail? How did they build the argument? And by doing this, by learning this outline of what a great structure looks like, he could then focus on his own little bit of novelty. He's not creating a whole new structure. No, no, he's finding a familiar, successful structure and creating his own novelty on top. And so ironically, I guess, imitation is a huge part of creativity because it allows you to learn that familiar baseline. Hmm. So, and, and the ability to imitate, again, it seems like it's coming from not passive consumption where it's, you know, you know, you sit down and it's like, all right, I'll have one more episode. Okay. Watch I'll have one more yeah, episode, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's from, uh, although again, that's not, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong about that, but somebody who's deliberately studying what they're consuming are going to get way more to, you know, in terms of Malcolm's 10,000 hours, they're racking up more hours, so to speak. hundred percent. It gives you, it, it, it takes that from sort of road practice to again, that idea of deliberate practice, like deliberate practice for ideas. Yeah. 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 So, well, so then is there any kind of, way to maybe move forward uh, past consumption and imitation into uh, these other two laws, the creative uh, communities and doing iterations? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give sort of a high level just because um, I know your show is in two hours and um, this isn't the audiobook um, and I can talk a lot. Um, so, the, um, so, the, so the two other laws I talk about, um, one is this idea of creative communities. And one of the things I found when I was um, interviewing people is that 
all of them, you know, there's this idea of the solo genius we talked about, but all of them have all these people around them. There's all these people who play different roles. Um, I outlined four different roles um, in, that people sort of put in their creative communities. The one that I think is probably the most interesting to me is the idea of a prominent promoter. And so because capital C creativity is about creating work that people like, well, you actually have to get them to experience the work to see if they like it. And so one of the roles you see is that people typically are associated with someone else who's more successful than them that sort of um, lends them a hand, lends them their reputation, lets them borrow their credibility. So you see this a lot in music where people have opening acts on tour, right? Rascal Flatts had Taylor Swift open for them. Then Taylor Swift had Shawn Mendes open for her. They're all famous now, and Shawn Mendes has people open for him. And so you see this idea of sort of passing on reputation. You see this with academics. Typically, um, more senior researchers will take on junior researchers, and you know they'll give them credit on the paper and all this stuff to help them build their resume, to build their career. So that's incredibly important. The fourth thing I talk about in the book is this idea of data-driven iterations. You know, we think about creativity as like a writer like goes to a forest and they find a cabin and they like write their great American novel and they come out of the cabin when they write the end. No, 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 no. What you actually find is that the people who are really good at creativity are also feedback obsessed. You know, writers have multiple readers, their agent reads it, their editor reads it, their friends read it. They're constantly getting feedback because... Because if capital C creativity is about creating something that will resonate with the audience, well, then part of the process is getting that feedback from the audience. Um, Movies famously actually consume huge amounts of data. Nowadays, not even post-production, but pre-production. They'll actually test movie concepts before green lighting them. Once the movie is done, they'll actually show it to all these different audiences and do test screenings to see if the editing works, to see if the pacing works, to see if any characters need to be cut out. You know, the movie Fatal Attraction that, you know, did phenomenal in the box office, won all these Academy Awards, they completely redid the ending because it sucked when they edited, when they did the test screenings. And then even after movies are done, they do all this basically polling to see how many people are going to go see the movie and if their marketing strategy is working so they can refine it. And so oftentimes, these things that we think of as these sort of very, you know, linear processes from point A to B, it actually turns out the best creatives ingest lots and lots of data and feedback early on and take this very messy route from point A to B because that's how they nail being on the right spot in the creative curve. By listening to their audience, that's how they can actually understand, am I going to be at that perfect spot? Because inherently, if you s- spend all of your time doing something, you're not going to be the perfect representation of your audience. So you actually have to listen to them. Shocking. I know. Well, and then there's that balance of not just showing it to your friends who are going to say, oh, this is great, even if they don't think it is. Right. <laughs> totally. I mean, this is one of those things that's really funny. I mean, once you get into feedback, you start getting upset with people who give you non-candid feedback. Like when I was writing this book, you know, I, I would I had friends who were reading it and the friends who you asked to read more chapters are the friends who, no offense to any friends who are listening, are the friends <laughs> who like give you real feedback. Because it's kind of annoying once you realize that part of your job is to get feedback. It's annoying to get bad feedback. Not bad as in negative. We like negative feedback. Bad as in too positive. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That's a different kind of – we don't think of that as bad, but it it really can short circuit and keep you from creating those iterations or send you down the and wrong the, track for wrong iterations, right? Exactly, exactly. What's the best kind of prescribed way maybe to keep our hands on the pulse of, say, creative community? 
and in the midst of doing these iterations, like, I mean, is it suggested you just basically find the right people that you trust? Is it that simple or is it, you know? Well, I think, I think one of the things, I mean, no, it's a lot more complicated than that, but I think one of the things that is sort of most immediately actionable for people, one of the things that's most immediately actionable is if you're in a creative field that is geographically dense, you kind of need to move there. Right. If you want to be in entertainment, you better be in L.A. or New York. If you want to be in fine art, you better be in New York. Like one of the things since people play such a big role in the creative process, you really do have to be in one of the epicenters because those relationships are such a big part of the creative process. And so, you know, it is getting easier to do it remotely because of the Internet and you know, tra- the cost of traveling is lower. Uh, but it's still one of those things where you really you have to be in uh, some place where there's that uh, that heart and soul that you know that face to face meeting potential. Yeah, well, and I think some people would disagree. They'd say, "Well, you know, I want to do it my way. I want to do it here. I have a creative community here, and I'm still consuming things and you know deliberately assessing them. So I'll stay here." But I, I think you're still to a certain extent probably. Um, consuming or interacting with people again with these these tools that allow us to connect. Like you and I are it, nowhere and, near and, each other and, having this conversation, but sure. But I think and I think there's a difference between being creative and being wildly successful and being creative, right? Sure. And that's part of what the book is tailored to. There is, you know, in the book, I did not when I was interviewing you know screenwriters or producers, even the ones who like don't live in L.A. They live in L.A. Like they spend you know three months of the year back home, right. quote unquote, and the rest of the year working, quote unquote, in L.A. And so like I just think that's a reality that people, if they want to achieve huge creative heights, huge creative heights, which is what the book's about, you have to move. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. Well, and again, that's a, this maybe a certain amount of commitment is there, and and maybe that whole living there but not living there idea is something. Somebody out there who's listening has never thought of and could be an option to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, for I, I, I for example, you know, work in the my my company is a marketing tech company. I'm based in Washington, D.C. So I just I have to be in New York all the time. Right. So I'm just constantly on a train to New York and like mm-hmm. it's just part of the job. Right. It's like part of what I have to do if I want the company to be successful. And so it is possible to live in multiple places these days, but you do have to be intentional and conscious about it. Well, I think that everybody should be intentional and conscious and, and go grab this book because it's an extreme, uh, extremely good complement to a lot of the ideas that we talk about on this show all the time. Uh, again, it's called The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Uh, are there any bonuses or anything out there for people if they start to grab it now? Yeah, so if you go to thecreativecurve.com, we have some pre-order perks. You can get a signed book plate uh, if you pre-order, all sorts of fun stuff, and I'll send you a PDF of the first chapter. That's sweet. Yeah, so people can start reading now as it's uh, literally just dropping uh, and being pre-ordered uh, as we speak. So, uh, Alan, this has been fascinating. Uh, I can't wait for people to reach out and say, hey, I never thought about it that way. And and, I, and inevitably they do. So uh, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate it. So you've heard what Alan has to say about genius and about talent and about the 
10,000-hour rule from Malcolm Gladwell. I'm curious if you believe those same things he does based on his research for this book. I know, as you've heard in the conversation, I'm sold. I really do believe this. Like, I really do think that when it comes down to it, it really is more about putting in the deliberate practice. It's more about honing the skills intentionally and that it's not this just set 10,000-hour rule mark that you have to hit and then suddenly you're a master or you've mastered whatever that thing is, that it's actually about breaking down the overall thing into those smaller skills and then not just passively doing it a whole lot to, quote, get better at it, but to master each and every individual part of the process for that bigger, bolder, broader, creative talent thing that is the overarching thing that, again, most people say, that's the 10,000 hours that I put in and then I'm good at that thing. So I'm telling you, like, I believe this, like, I really do, because I think I can see the evidence of a lot of different things in my past that over time and interest and intentional work at it, I've gotten better with certain things, and those are components of bigger things. And I'm kind of looking around at my internal life and thinking, where are some of the other smaller skills that I need to hone that then will round out and complete some of these bigger things that I know that I am good at, but could be great at? So I want to hear from you. Go to beyondthetodolist.com slash 225. There you'll find the show notes. You'll also find the comment section. You can leave a comment there and let me know what you think. Yay or nay? talent is it a thing while you're there hit share and let somebody that you know enjoy this episode as much as you did because you're listening this far in so i know you're a faithful fan thanks again for listening i hope that you enjoyed this episode got something really great out of it some encouragement some food for thought and that that will carry you along in your creative and productive life and i will see you next episode